Great to see you guys this morning. Uh, this past week, I was out in town and I crossed paths with someone who's a part of our church, and she was just talking to me about things she loves about our church, which I always appreciate and I'm encouraged by. And she said something like, she just wished that she could just, you know, like we could just sit around and just talk about some of the things we talk about uh, in the sermon, even after the, the worship service, just kind of keep it going. And, and I was encouraged by that, and I asked her, have you... Have you ever been a part of a small group? Because that's the kind of thing you get to do in a small group. And she hadn't. And, and I'm, hoping that, that I'm hoping that she'll get, get, get involved in a group. And maybe you'll do that too. Um, but instead of trying to encourage you guys just to join a small group right now, I want to talk to those. I want to focus on something different. Do you know why we're able to have small groups? It's because of leaders. It's because people, men and women, choose to host and to lead. And one of the things that we say around here is this, and I really want to remind you of it. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. And if it would just put joy in your soul, like if you would enjoy it, if you would geek out over being able to use whatever influence you have to help somebody else take their next step with Jesus, I want to encourage you to think about that. You don't have to make any commitments, right? Um, I just want you to do this. As this service ends, I want you to go out into the lobby. I want you to see Pastor Svea. She's going to be hanging out kind of over in this corner right here. Just go talk to her and say, what would it look like to be a small group leader? I'm open to having people maybe come to my house and drink bad coffee and eat good snacks and just talk about Jesus. So if there's any part of you that'd be interested, talk to Pastor Svea about that and find out what next steps might be because we love this part of our church. All right. So we're kicking off today. This is week two of a series we started last week called Devoted. And I, I want to share with you as we begin something that popped up on my social media feed uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is a few years old. Uh, this is Hal right here, and this is his daughter, Pierce. Back in 2018, Pierce was a flight attendant for Delta, and she drew the short straw. She had to work on Christmas Day. And so this is what Hal did. He got tickets for all six flights that she was working just so he could be with his daughter on Christmas Day. What a cool dad move that is, right? And I look around the room, I see people smiling, and I'm hearing like awes and stuff. Like why is it? It's so, it's universal. It's just positive. The way people hear that story, it's universal and how they respond. I want to ask you, why is it so powerful just to be with someone? Why is it so powerful when someone values so highly being with us? Do you know why? It's because we were made for relationship. We were made to be with. It's inescapable. It's hardwired into us. This is the stuff of life. And I want you to think about that. And I, want, I don't want you to just think. I want you to feel all of that. As we look at these words from Jesus, in John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. Okay, what is it? This is eternal life, that they know you, God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is relational, and eternal life, it doesn't begin after we're dead. It doesn't begin once we enter heaven. According to Jesus, it's now, not later. Being with Jesus, knowing Jesus, that he described that as eternal life, and it, it's intended to be experienced and to begin right now. You were made. You were made for relationship by a relational God, which means we got to pause for a second and talk about the Trinity. And let me just tell you, I don't have the time and I don't have the intelligence to unpack all the mysteries of the Trinity over the next couple of minutes, but this is what you need to know. God is one in being and three 
and persons. Being is what you are, person is who you are. God is one in being, three in person. And this is what that means. For all eternity, God has been a community of friendship. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that means that God is, in essence, fundamentally, he is, he is friendship. And that is the only thing that makes sense of the assertion that God is love. Love isn't something that God started doing after he created angels and people and whatever. For all eternity, this is who he is. This is what he is like. This is what he does. And here's the big point. This is, this is why we need to remember that. Ultimate reality is ultimately about relationship. Ultimate reality is ultimately about relationship. You weren't made for productivity. You weren't made for achievement and to acquire things and to work and to gain knowledge and all of that is good and wonderful. But you were made for relationship. And if you'll give me permission to be bold, let me say this. Any approach to life that you take that isn't utterly and exquisitely relational, it will eventually break and it will break you. Any approach to life that you take, I don't care how many good things are packed into it. If it is not relational at its core, it will break and it will break you. I want to do a quick recap of some of the things we covered last week as we kicked off this system. We said this series, we said your system or your approach to life is perfectly designed to get the results you're currently getting. Like if there's an area in your life that you're like, I don't know, I don't, I don't like what I'm experiencing, I don't like the results that I'm getting, you can change the approach because the approach that you have right now is perfectly designed to get those results, right? And according to, to Jesus, right, he, he's intending for us to have a thriving life. He wants us to have life to the full. That's John 10, 10. Like if you want to experience that, if you want to experience and enjoy what Jesus described as eternal life, I just want to ask, what's your approach? What approach are you taking to that? Because according to Jesus, it is fundamentally 100% relational. So what is that relationship? What should it be like? Last and that's kind of a recap of last week. We remembered that Jesus' daddy had a job and his dad was a carpenter. But Jesus had a different job. He had a different career. Jesus was a rabbi. And that was an incredibly prestigious position. It was hard. It wasn't easy to become one. Most people couldn't do it. And to understand how someone became a rabbi, we got to know a little bit about the Jewish educational system. Like ours, it started at five years old. At five years old, kids would go to Beit Sefer. It means house of the book. And um, they would stay there in that education system. So they're about 12 or 13 years old. And by the end, they were supposed to be able to have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And at the end of Beit Affair, most kids just went back to their homes and did the family business and went on with life. Education was done. But for the best of the best, they were invited to go to Beit Midrash, which is the house of learning. And that lasted for about five years. And so by the time they were 17 or 18, if they successfully completed that education track, they would have had memorized the rest of the Old Testament. 
And at the end of that, most everybody's done. You just go home, you get married, you work the family business, you do your, you just live your life. But if you were the best of the best of the best, you could ask to become an apprentice of a rabbi. And that rabbi didn't just accept you based on your GPA. He would interview you and he would ask you some really rigorous questions. And if you survived that interview process, the rabbi would say, come follow me. Who does that sound like? That's exactly how Jesus invited people to follow him. Come, follow me, be my disciple, be my apprentice. And then it was the apprentices of a rabbi who were the best of the best that they would eventually go on to become a rabbi. And this is the exact kind of relationship that Jesus invites us into. He is the rabbi, we are the apprentice, he is the master, we learn from and we follow him. And if you became an apprentice of a rabbi in that culture, you had three driving goals. Number one, be with your rabbi, become like your rabbi, and then do as your rabbi did. This is the relationship model that Jesus kept, but he did change something. You don't have to be the best of the best student. You don't have to pass a rigorous interview process. He opened it to everyone, whosoever will, whoever would trust him and love him and want to follow him. Jesus said, come and follow me. I am your rabbi. You are my apprentice. All right. Now, I don't have time to like repeat everything from last week. I would encourage you, if you missed the start of this series, go and watch the message online because there's some kind of groundwork pieces that you need to understand to kind of catch everything that's coming with the rest of this series. But one of the things we discovered last week is this. It is possible to have right beliefs and right behavior and at the end of life for Jesus to say, I never knew you. It's possible to have right beliefs right behavior, and at the end of life for Jesus to say, I never knew you. We all, it's also possible to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus and at the end of our life discover that we have nothing to show for our lives at this time and opportunity that we had with following Jesus. We wasted it. And on that sobering realization is what drives our, um, our series thesis, a continuing anthem throughout this series. And we're saying this, I would invite you to write it down. Maturity is possible, that's good news, but it's not inevitable. That's sobering news. Maturity is possible, but it's not inevitable. Wouldn't it be great that as you got older, you automatically got better? Is that how it works? Not necessarily. Like, how do we explain that someone is a legit follower of Jesus, but over time, they're not looking more like Jesus? Well, how do we explain that you could be a follower of Jesus, and over time, you could be growing older, but you're not looking more like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? How do we explain that? It's this right here. Last week after this message, uh, one of our... um, retired pastors who's still a part of our church, Pastor Woody, he, he sent me something as a text. He sent me this right here. He said, remember, aging is mandatory, maturing is optional. And if you know Pastor Woody, that's a beautiful example of him. All right. I don't think that's him in this photo, but if you want to like edit, re- rewrite our series thesis to this, aging is mandatory, maturing is optional, that's okay. But here it is. However you choose to think about it, you are thriving your vitality, your maturity. It hinges on the choices you make and the approach that you take. Do you know why our church exists? 
Our church exists for, for this, to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want to be his disciples. We want to be his apprentices. And we want to invite as many people as we can into that. And the way that we think about that, we use three words to, to really capture the essence of that. Authority, identity, and activity. In the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about identity and activity. But today, we're really focusing on this. Jesus is our authority. It means I find joy in just being with Jesus, submitting to him, and following his way. And to wrap our minds and hearts around that today, I'm going to ask you, would you grab a Bible and open up to John 15? You can use a Bible like this. You could use a phone. Either one is fine. We're going to look at this together. This was written um, down by a guy named John who might have been Jesus' closest friend. He was there uh, for all the major events of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Um, what John wrote down for us was what took place on Jesus' last night of freedom. When Jesus uh, said these words, he's maybe just a couple of hours away from being arrested and the whole process of being tortured and eventually going to the cross is about to be underway. And Jesus knew that that was coming. And if you're in a situation like that, that is when you just kind of open up your guts and you talk about the things that are most urgent and the most important to you. And that is the context through which should frame how we read and receive these words from Jesus. So let's look at John 15. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Again, we're seeing an image of the Trinity here. Jesus is like, listen, I'm the source of life, and my, my father, the, God the Father, he is playing a role in your maturity. We're going to see how that works here. I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So the goal is to grow, to mature, to, to bear fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must what? Remain in the vine. You guys said that like you need a little coffee, all right? <laughs> Neither can you bear fruit unless you what? Remain. There we go. Remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is the approach. It's relational. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You know how we show that we are with Jesus? You know how we make God look good? Do you know how we, our lives reflect his goodness? It's by our maturing, us growing in Christ's likeness, by the fruit that we bear. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Is that relationship language? Yeah. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, why is Jesus telling us all this? I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus is sharing all this. You know what his goal is? 
He wants, he wants you to be so full of joy that you could burst. He's excited for joy in your life. He's invested in your life just gushing and overflowing with joy. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. More relationship stuff. The greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. All right. What word did Jesus repeat more than any other in those 17 verses? Remain. Yeah, like again and again and again. He said it. And you're a smart crowd. You know this. What's important is repeated. Over and over again, he says remain. Now, remain is a great word. I happen to like it. This is just me. I like it when Bible translators use abide instead of remain. I just like the force and the punch of that because it communicates live alongside of, live inside of, live with. Don't let anything, don't let anything come in between you being with Jesus. Another way we could read remain or abide is to be with. And we get it. When something is repeated, man, that is important. But when something is repeated 11 times, that means anchor yourself to that. Chain yourself to that. Marry yourself to that. Years ago, when, when my boy was probably about seven years old, early elementary school, it was one of those mornings, it was just me and him, and I'm trying to get him out of the house to school, uh, and it ain't working. Uh, have you ever had one of those mornings where you feel like you're in fast forward and your kid is in reverse? It was that kind of day, right? And so I'm getting frustrated, but I'm decided I'm going to be like a lot of dads. I'm going to use this as a teaching moment, which you know is going to go great. Um, I'm teaching about effort. You got effort to get your backpack. It takes effort to, you know, tie your shoes. It takes effort uh, to listen. It takes effort to do well at school. And in the short drive to school, I must have said the word effort 25 times. So we pull up in the drop-off lane. He opens the door, and I put my hand on him. I said, son, we've been talking about something really important today. It starts with an E. What have we been talking about? And he looked in my eyes, and he said, E, responsibility. <laughs> Sometimes the thing that we're trying to focus on, it just loses focus. And it's not just kids, is it? It happens to adults. I mean, we can latch on to something good, but we, but we miss the main thing. Jesus said it 11 times. Abide, 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 abide. This is it. This is life with Jesus. And we never graduate from it. We never unhitch ourselves from it. We never level up and mature out. I mean, this is it. Life with Jesus is utterly and exquisitely relational. It is, I find joy in just being with him, submitting to him and following his way. And this life and this relationship that Jesus intends for you and for me, he made it in such a way that it is almost foolproof. 
in this same conversation where Jesus emphasized abide, 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 abide in me. That is the same conversation in which Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come. And if you follow me, the very Spirit of God is going to be with and in you. And again, we see the Trinity. We trust in Christ. The Spirit of God is in us. And God the Father is working to make our life fruitful. And our ability to really know and enjoy this life and relationship that Jesus intended is never going to outpace our understanding that he is so committed to being with that he put the very Spirit of God inside of us. And that is content of the gospel that comes with massive implication. And I want to turn to a couple of verses that were written by the Apostle Paul to help us see the implication that comes from the very from the Spirit of God living inside of you and me. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. It is in us. It's in you. It's in me to show that this all-surpassing power from God is not from us. Let me turn to one more in case it's not clear yet. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. If you are a follower of Jesus, abide in Him. The Holy Spirit of God abides in you your temple. It's not wrong to describe a room or to call a room like this a sanctuary. That's not wrong. You can do that. If I'm super honest with you guys, there's a part of me that recoils a little bit when we say that. Because the Spirit of God does not abide in a place. The Spirit of God, He abides in people. And this is what a temple was. A temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. A temple was a place where the Spirit of God would come to be with people and he would fill and indwell and abide in a particular place. But we don't need sacred buildings and sacred spaces anymore. Because you are a follower of Jesus. You are the sacred sanctuary of God. You are a temple. This is what that means. If you're a note taker, write this down. Our lives are to be an intersection of where heaven meets earth. Our lives are to be an intersection. Did you know that? Where heaven meets earth. The gospel is just as much about getting heaven into you right now as it is getting you into heaven later. Let me say it one more time. The gospel is just as much about getting heaven into you right now as it is getting you into heaven later. When people encounter us, when we encounter each other, every aspect and arena of our lives is supposed to be a demonstration, a display of heaven meeting earth. But we don't have a lot of time to talk about this now, but I want to give you some categories to start thinking about. The way that you engage politically, and I hope you do. What you do or don't do with your money how you approach handling your reputation, your sexuality, 
what you do or don't do with your time, your relationship with your neighbors, your neighboring, how you handle conflict, how you handle work, or how you handle retirement. Have you ever thought the whole point is to be a demonstration of heaven meeting earth in my life? We're going to spend a lot more time talking about that in week four, but right now I just want to give you a glimpse of it, and here's why. Because when we catch the magnitude, when we catch a glimpse of the magnitude of what this life with Jesus is, it should cause us to break up with the wrong-headed, stupid idea that it's dependent upon our ability and our effort. When we catch a glimpse of the magnitude of this life with Jesus, it should send us sprinting, just running to our rabbi, utterly depending on him, just wanting to be with him. What does it look like? What does it mean to remain or abide or to be with? I want to turn to what might have been Jesus' most famous sermon ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mountain. One of the things he said in that is Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the street, in the synagogues, uh, on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's catch this. If we want to abide, we must first learn to hide. If we want to abide, we must first learn to hide. What we're doing right now, I think is important. I think it's a big deal. I think when we gather together in a worship service in large groups is important. I think when we gather in our small groups, when we gather in our ministry teams, anytime we gather with, with other believers, that is a part of vitality. It's a part of thriving in the Christian life. But hear me on this. There is no abiding in Christ. There is no abiding in Christ if there are not times where we're going in secret, where we're closing out everything else and everyone else. And we have undisturbed, unhurried time of prayer with Jesus. Now there are all kinds of expressions and um, rhythms that come to a spiritual life. There are spiritual formation. There are all kinds of healthy spiritual practices. Prayer is just one. We like to um, come alongside you and invest and and helping us each to grow in spiritual practices. That's why we have spiritual practices classes. We have a class coming up in the next couple of months called Practicing the Way. I hope you'll sign up for one of those. But right now, we're just going to focus on these words from Jesus about prayer. If we want to abide, if we want to have this relationship with him, and we want to know him, it's going to require this. We close out everything else. We shut out everyone else. We have times of undisturbed, unhurried prayer with him. He went on to say, and when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. I'm curious, this is, this is real talk now, who in here has ever been nervous about praying in public because you didn't want to sound dumb? All right, tell the truth. Don't worry about that. Jesus said, it, that's what pagans do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you sound like. How good your words are. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about somebody judging you. You're not, they're not the ones you're talking to anyway. Right? Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Because God's not as so focused on your words as he is what's coming from our hearts. So would you write this down? Prayer isn't an exchange of information. It's an experience of intimacy. It's not an exchange of information. 
It's an experience of intimacy. If you've ever struggled, how do I pray? If you've ever kind of felt stuck, can I just say this? Just talk. Just get alone. Get quiet. Just talk. Now, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with telling God what you want. There's nothing wrong with telling God what you need and asking him to provide. That's good. Do that. We go wrong if we reduce prayer to only that. This is the time for us to get alone, to get quiet, to talk to him, to express gratitude, to talk honestly about ways that we've messed up, to share with him things that are important to us and just quiet ourselves and listen to him and to be with him, to rest in him. Crawford Loritz is a pastor who I am quick to listen to. I've never had the privilege of meeting him personally. Uh, I don't know him. Pastor Otis knows him. Uh, you guys talk on the phone, and I think, you should, I think you should hook me up. Don't you guys think Pastor Otis should introduce me? Yes. I think so, too. But the reason I love Pastor Crawford Loritz is because he just strikes me as a guy who knows what it is to be with Jesus. This is one of the things he says about prayer. He says, prayer is an expression of our life's dependence on God. And in order for prayer to be a delight, it first has to be a discipline. How does this word strike you right here? Saturday night service last night, I asked that same question. How does this word strike you? And a guy right here said, I don't like it. <laughs> and a lot of times we don't like the word discipline, but discipline is just a habit with purpose. A discipline is just a habit with, person, with purpose. And your life is a complex network of all kinds of habits. And those habits might enhance your life or they might limit your life. But your life is a complex network of all kinds of habits. And in every aspect and arena of life, I promise you, you have habits. You have exercise habits, even if your habit is to stay in bed. Okay? You have drinking habits, even if your habit is to choose not to drink. You have financial habits, even if your habit is to not make a budget. Did you know you have relationship habits too? You have relationship habits with everyone who you intersect with in your world. I promise you, you have relationship habits even with the people who you think you don't think about. And those relationship habits are either helpful or they're not helpful. You have relationship habits with your boss. And if you are the boss, you have relationship habits with your employees. You have relationship habits with your coworkers, with your friends. You have relationship habits. You have these go-to automatic moves with your significant other. You have them with your ex. You have them with your neighbors. You even have them with the cashier at the grocery store. And your habit is, could be to not make eye contact and to not engage in small talk. Or your habit could be, this is another chance for me to make a new best friend and everybody behind me can wait. Right? You have relationship habits. And remember what I said before, a discipline is a habit with a purpose. A habit, write this down, a habit that isn't a discipline is just a rut. Any habit that isn't a discipline is just a rut. Disciplines and ruts can both become second nature. But the difference is, a discipline is intentional, purposeful, and mindful. A rut is not intentional, it's purposeless, and it's mindless. 
when I ask you a question about your relationship with Jesus, do you have relationship disciplines or do you have relationship rets? Remember how we started off the sermon? We're talking about this guy, Hal. That's not, he wasn't in a rut as a dad, was he? To get those six tickets, to, to be on those six flights, that's intentional, that's purposeful, very mindful. And believe it or not, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, it is not my goal to get you to be more like this guy. Today, my goal is to inspire you to be more like her, who's your heavenly father has already begun the work. God in Christ has already closed the gap and made himself close to us. The Spirit of God, if you have trusted in Christ, is in you. And any move that we make to be with Jesus is in response to the, to the work that he's already done to be close to us. A.W. Tozer was a pastor and an author who mentored many people from a distance through his writings and probably many millions more after his death. He wrote this. He said, at the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children, those followers of Jesus, to push into conscious awareness of his presence. When you choose to hide, when you choose to create space just to be alone, and undisturbed and unhurried with Jesus, you are pushing into the conscious awareness of his presence. And in those times in life when you can't hide, which is like most of our day, right? Or you're going through your day, and whether it's chaotic or it's peaceful, and you choose just to have a disposition of continually just talking to Jesus in prayer all throughout the day, you are pushing into the conscious awareness of his presence. It would be a tragic thing if we only thought of Jesus as a manual at Christmas time. Because of what Jesus has done, God is with us and God is for us. So let's intentionally, purposefully, mindfully be with him. And today I, I, don't, have, I don't have a formula to give you. I don't have a checklist to give you. I don't have a schedule of when you should pray and how long you should pray. What I have is an approach. And it's an approach that's based on valuing and making it a priority to be with Jesus. And so let me just ask you, what would it look like if you prioritize that in your life? If you are a mom with tiny humans, it's probably going to look different than if you are a retired grandpa. If you are single and you're grinding in your education and you're grinding trying to break into your career, it's probably going to look a little bit different than if you're already settled in your career and you got domestic responsibilities. I want you to do something. I want you to look around. It's like, seriously, I really want you to do that. I want you to look around. Just look around this room. The goal is not for you to look like anybody you just looked at. The goal is to look like Jesus. That's the goal. So wherever you are, and as you are, go be with him. And as you do, I want to leave you with a thought that was a takeaway for me from this book, Practicing the Way 
I want you to write it down. It comes from John Mark Comer. He said this, the reward for following Jesus is Jesus. It's not about getting more stuff. It's about getting more of our Savior. It's about knowing and experiencing him. 